Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you. I will fight for you. And I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you.
everybody, this is Rory Sodder. Thank you for tuning into the Rory Sodder Show. Happy Tuesday. It is great to be back with all of you. I hope you had a great holiday weekend. Uh, I hope it all went accordingly. I hope it was fun. I hope it was a productive. I, uh, I hope you had a great Columbus Day. Um, you know, we have had a lot go on this past weekend in the media, which has been fantastic for us conservatives. I mean, we have so much to celebrate about, celebrate about and be happy about and uh, be so enthused and motivated about. We now have the majority in the Supreme Court. Justice Brett Kavanaugh has been officially confirmed. The liberals lost again, as usual, with their smear campaign. You got to love it. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. I mean, I mean, seriously. We, we, we you know, over the weekend, um, you know, we, we really got uh, so much of America back. We got so much of uh, what we've been missing in the Supreme Court in terms of constitutional values and in terms of, you know, uh, the rule of law and uh, the the American way and, and the way we should all uh, set value for it and live by. And you know our um, our our, our uh, you know just our morals and, and our ethical standards. I mean we and and I think it's going to be even more and more. I mean we're going to get we're going to get at least probably two or three more Supreme Court justices in there uh, during Trump's time. Um, you know it, it's 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 destined to happen. Ginsburg's on her way out. Then there'll be a few more. Uh, we have a lot to look forward to. I mean we're going to have the majority for a long time. Um, you know, a huge show today, by the way. Uh, I do want to say, I do want to welcome, first of all, on the line, uh, my co-host, as always, from Ohio, Joshua Halabate. How are you, buddy? It's going well, going well. How are you, Rory? Good, man. What are your thoughts, man? You're happy, right? Really happy. Oh, I'm I'm ecstatic, obviously. You know, um, the the fact that the smear campaign didn't work is probably which makes me the most, you know, because if he just would have got put on the Supreme Court, it wouldn't have been as exciting as the fact that we beat the Democrats the way we did. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, and this is, you know, what the left was doing is the same crap uh, they were doing, you know, during the Hillary Clinton, uh, during when they were when they were all going for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. I mean, they, they were acting the same way. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, they they pulled the you know they pulled the same type of deal with uh, with Roy Moore as well down in Alabama. Um, yep. You know, it, it's you know it's it, there's nothing new under the sun to Democrats. Oh, you're you're absolutely right, one hundred percent. And it's it, it's just a merry-go-round. And I I've been saying this all the time. Every week it's something new with them. You know, they don't stop. Uh, you know, and, and it's like every week they're on to a new obsession. They're on to a new topic. You know, the Brett Kavanaugh thing didn't work out. Then they'll be on something new this next week. You know what I mean? No, they absolutely, absolutely will be. But the, I think the funny thing is, even though they move topics so fast, they still have all the same tactics to go about supposedly trying to stop, you know, the other agenda. Like they haven't, 
they need to wise up and actually do something that people will back them for. None, nothing they do now gets them any support, just loses them support. It makes their base stronger, but that doesn't win you elections. Bases don't win elections. It's the people in the middle. Exactly. Oh, oh you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. 100%. I mean, you know, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, they think this radical, the left thinks that they can act radical, they can do all this crazy shit, and, and you know, they can have these temper tantrums and their protests, and people are actually going to listen to them, and people are actually going to, uh, you know, give in. And, and they're act, they think they're actually sending a valuable message, but all they're doing is hurting themselves and kicking themselves in the foot and guaranteeing a red wave in November. I mean, th- this behavior is ridiculous. First, it's the undocumented immigrants, illegals, who don't belong in our country. Next, I mean, it's Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, then we have uh, them going after every one of Trump's administration staffers in restaurants where they can't even have peace. I mean, this is, this is getting to a point where uh, it's dangerous. And, and we have senators. And it, well, no, Maxine Waters is not a senator, but we do have Democratic senators. And Maxine Waters is obviously a congresswoman, but we have senators and Congress people calling for uh, violence on, you know, Trump uh, voters and, and anybody associated with Trump and Trump, Trump affiliates, Trump workers. It's sick stuff. Well, you know, and the reason for that is at a certain point after you've gone out the deep end and can no longer quantify the reasons why you either agree or disagree with things. You just get angry with the person if you're not willing to change your beliefs. So when you get angry, everything's up in the air for what you're willing to do. When you're not willing to have, sit down and have a conversation and exactly. open your mind, willing to change, or even willing just yeah. to exchange ideas, when you're not willing to do that, you just get angry. Exactly. You're, you're absolutely right. And, we, and like Kanye says, we have to lead with love rather than hate. We have to be open to having conversations with everyone because if we keep arguing and yelling at each other, nothing gets solved. I mean, there's nothing that good that comes out of it. You know what I mean? No, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we want to move our country forward. There's a thing. I don't yeah. hate Democrats. I think, right. in fact, I, I even the worst Democrats, in the whole entire world, even Hillary Clinton, there's things that I can look at her and say, okay, I, I disagree with 100% of her politics, but there's things I like about her as a person or respect about her as a person. But the, de- the Democrats are not willing to do that to the other side. They find if someone doesn't agree with their politics, they have no respect for them whatsoever. They have no inclining of interest in that person. And, I mean, to be fair, that's just wrong and it's just anti-human. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And, and we're going to talk a lot more about this, but I do have a bunch of people on the line. Stay on. Uh, first of all, I have a couple block numbers calling in right now. Who am I speaking with on – I know Valerie and Dan Perkins are on, but I have two other block numbers that are calling in right now. Uh, thank you for calling the Rory Sire Show. How am I help you? Hello? Speak up, motherfucker. Who is this? This is IQ. Oh, this is IQ. How you doing, buddy? I thought you were some guy going to prank me or something. All right, hold on. We got the no, other you, block you, numbers. You come to your show. Because so I've got IQ. I've gotten so many block numbers of people messing around and, and pranking. But hold on. Let's do the other one. Hold on. It's Scott Shea. Oh, Scott Shea. Okay. Okay. 
Hello, Scott Shea. Yep. How are you? Um, so I want to welcome everybody to the show. I want to do a proper introduction. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, you can find our show on Radio Public, Blurberry, iHeart, Stitcher, CastBox, Player.fm, iTunes, Spotify, just to name a few. We're all over the place. We're now downloadable in 15 different countries. Uh, we have thousands of listeners. Uh, I want to thank all of our audience, um, like I do every episode. I want to thank, you know, our, our guests that are on the line, uh, my amazing co-hosts. Um, and the show just keeps moving way quicker than anticipated, and I'm so excited about it. Uh, but today's show is huge. First of all, we have on the line Wall Street expert, private, private equity success, business investor, venture capitalist, best-selling author, and co-founder of the Signature Bank of New York, Scott A. Shea. How are you, my friend? First time on the show. It is, and I'm glad to be on your 100th episode. I know. It, it is the 100th episode. Um, you know, it is something uh, quite uh, – it feels great. It really does, and it's, uh, it's a great accomplishment. It, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. It's been a fun journey, and, you know, there's just been so many uh, amazing people that we've interviewed and had on the show along the way and just, you know, things that, uh, things that we've, uh, you know, experienced. I mean, it's just been a fun, a fun ride. Definitely, um, and I am so well, grateful. Congratulations for making it. That's a Thank big you. milestone. Thank you, and we have a, we have a brand new. Uh, I have a brand new media empire coming out. Um, it is out, and it's going to be fully uh, done this week, uh, within the next day or so. Uh, that I can't wait to uh, share with everybody, and, and like I said, we will be broadcasting from there from now on to all my audience, and we'll be doing TV as well, everyone. So. I want everybody to know that who's listening. So we'll be have a whole setup. A bunch of people will have their own TV shows, their own columns, um, their own radio shows, a constant 24-7 breaking news coverage. Uh, we use the same exact coding and build as you could do, same capabilities and functionalities as InfoWars or Fox News. So it's a very fancy platform, and I can't wait to share it with all of you. I've been working on it all day, So and I've been working on it for months. So, I mean, there's – and we're just finishing the very final last touch-up. So exciting stuff. Exci- it's an exciting day uh, for so many reasons. I want to welcome uh, my other co-host, um, Legislative Affairs for President Ronald Reagan, international security expert, Islamic historian, political activist, and Amazon New York Times bestselling author, Valerie Greenfield. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. And I do want to welcome... Um, a very, very, very good friend of the show, very famous guy, oil and natural gas investor, foreign policy analysis, businessman, motivational speaker, radical Islam expert, and a contributor to Daily Caller, Clash Daily, Live Vet, Daily Search, and The Hill. Mr. Dan Perkins, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And yourself? Doing well. Great to have you here. Um, you know, thank you. Uh, a lot to get, a lot to get into today. But uh, you know, my my breaking monologue uh, was praising. The confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. You know, the Democrats did not get their way. Uh, you know, their whole uh, smear campaign was a fail. Uh, this is a huge, huge win for conservatives. Um, and, uh, you know, I could not be happier. You know, we were, as of late last week uh, during the last show, you know, obviously the future was unclear with uh, Kavanaugh uh, and, and him getting voted in. Uh, but Susan Collins saved the Senate. I mean, thank God for that that, that girl. I mean, she uh, did something pretty damn amazing. 
she was the uh, person that, uh, you know, made this happen at the end of the day. I mean, she was the vote that it came down to. And, and, and God bless Joe Manchin as well. You know, we, we've had, we had some people that were kind of unsure about, you know, the, where they stood on their, on their voting. Uh, but, you know, uh, the ones that came through and, and God, I mean, it's, it really is special. I mean, you know, we 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 weren't so sure, and we were some of us were worried. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things. Um, I do want to play a clip in a second, but and I, and I do want to get to my special guest. But Dan Perkins, I know you've been writing about this. What is your what is your thoughts? I want to get to you real quick. Um, I just want to make a quick follow up to the part of your opening monologue. Rand yeah. Paul, the senator from Kentucky today said yeah. that he, he is now afraid that First the, wife, the yeah. left has, has has moved the rhetoric so high up and there's so much anger that he's afraid that, that people are going to start getting shot, um, yeah. which is, uh, which is a, a very, very serious. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the mainstream media is taking him serious. Uh, the other thing was the, the the civility issue with Hillary Clinton. She came out today and said uh, they'll be civil when uh, they take back the Congress. Uh, how anybody could say that the Democratic Party is civil based on the way they, the, the senators questioned Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, I mean, we, we're, we're, we were talking about the qualifications of an individual to be uh, justice of the Supreme Court, and we were concerned about how many farts he did in high school. I mean, that's how ridiculous the Democrats were in their questioning. Uh, I think oh, yeah. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, last night at the at the honor ceremony, um, apologized on behalf of the nation to Judge Kavanaugh, which I thought was very yeah. appropriate because. Um, and then we had – I did a piece, which you're talking about, which is on Newsmax. It went up yesterday. And um, it's about the, the Democrats digging a hole, and uh, they get, they, this whole process, it was deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, yeah. One thing, I just, just a clip out of that article was that Justice Stevens, who's now close to 100, said that he was – he thought that, Je- that Judge Kavanaugh – Conducted himself well in the hearings, but in the in the the sexual accusation charges, he felt that he was too strong and wasn't measured enough. And I went back and did some research. Um, Justice Stevens, when he was confirmed to the Supreme Court, it took 19 days. 19 days. That was it. Over and done. So uh, while Justice Stevens is, is entitled to his opinion, uh, his opinion based on when he went through and what was going on versus what was going on this past week was uh, totally different, and I would have thought it would have been more appropriate for him not to say anything. So, Roy, that's my opening thoughts. Okay, very, very well said. We're going to get to our main guest, my co-host, Josh. Real quick, go ahead. Yeah, you know, boy, the fact that it only took 19 days in the whole scheme of thing is, I mean, it's pretty hysterical considering the amount 
of, you know, BS that really sprung up. But this also just goes to show that, like, Rory, when you were talking about the middle of the, the – uh, at the beginning of the show, you know, they really just jump onto one thing and move on to the next one. So, uh, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's something just to add at the end of that. It is really good that, you know, there's a couple people that we were worried about whether they were going to vote or not uh, for or against. But, you know, Jeff Flake – was one of the ones we were worried about that stood strong. I said he was going to do that. And as well as uh, Joe Manchin, uh, you know, glad that both of those guys kind of stuck to their original guns. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I do want to get to our our main guest, though, uh, tonight. And and Dan Perkins and IQ, please stay on the line because we will have a lot to talk about in a little bit. But, Scott Shea, uh, doing big things right now, man. Uh, your first time on the show. You have a hell of a story. Um, you know, I, I want to hear. I want to hear. You know, like I ask all my guests when they first time they call in. Just I want to hear your backstory. You know how it all started. You know your career, your your resume. Uh, obviously, I know what you're doing now. You have a big book out. You're still running uh, the big bank in New York. But you know, just a, just a little bit of a background, please. Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me on. Um, Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So my background is I grew up in Chicago. Um, I'm the first uh, person on either side of my family to go to college. My father was a Holocaust survivor, which in a certain kind of way really had me thinking about this book since the time I was um, you know, in the single digits. Um, and my please father. Please tell everybody where, real quick, you can do a quick plug about where they can find this book and the name of it, real quick. Sure. I'm happy to do that. My book is In Good Faith, and the subtitle is Questioning Religion and Atheism. Um, my name is Scott Shea, S H A Y. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Barnes Noble, you can get it almost at any good bookstore anywhere. Um, thankfully, it's selling well, um, so it's available. Uh, and um, uh, and thank you for having me to talk about it. The book just came out a couple of weeks ago, and um, yeah, uh, it's my second book. My first book was on the American Jewish community, which also, which actually was a bestseller, um, and that I wrote about uh, eleven, twelve years ago at this point. But this book is something that's been percolating in me literally since I was a small boy. Um, my father, when he was liberated from the concentration camps, he had the good fortune, and one of the reasons he was a great patriot is he, he was liberated. He was 60 pounds. And thankfully, he was liberated by the Americans, and they he was in the hospital for a full year um, recovering. I mean, he was a full-grown you know, 19-year-old, weighing 60 pounds. And and frankly, had he been liberated a, a week later, I don't know if he would have made it. He doesn't know if he would have made it. Um, he passed away, but he was liberated just in the nick of time. And if he was liberated in the Russian zone or liberated elsewhere, he probably wouldn't have gotten the care that he got. And for his entire life, he was grateful for that. But the reason the book's percolating and percolated in me is because of my father's um, encounter with evil, 
um, when my father grew up in, in Svexner, Lithuania, and he was um, gathered up with all the other Jews um, when the Nazis came in, and they shot a good number of them uh, before they were deported, including my grandfather. My father saw that. Um, and then my father was sent for slave labor, to be a slave laborer, and then finally to the concentration camps where probably, where I'm sure the thought was he would never come out. And the question is, how could the Lithuanians who stood around and do this, um, allow this to happen? How could uh, so many uh, Germans be involved in this? How could so many companies be using my father and others as slave labor? How do we grapple with the concept of evil? Because the atheists bring that as their major, as one of their major criticisms of religion, which is uh, if we believe in an omnipotent, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God, how do we have so much evil in the world? And that's one of the issues that I deal with in the book um, uh, quite a bit. Um, so my background is uh, my father um, stopped going to school at 13, but he always believed in education. I'm an only child. Um, I went to public school until I was in 10th grade, and then in 11th grade I decided to transfer to a Jewish school. I had a Crown Jewish Academy, and then I went to college, and then I went to business school, and then I worked on Wall Street where I saw a lot of stuff. If you want to, if you want to talk about idolatry, I saw a fair amount of it on Wall Street. Uh, the idol might have been money. It might have been people themselves, but there was certainly a fair amount of it, and I learned what Machiavellian idolatry is all about. And uh, ultimately, I joined uh, Louvreneri in private equity, and we had uh, uh, you know several very successful funds. Um, and uh, most re- more recently, I I co-founded a bank in New York with um, two other gentlemen, Joe DiPaolo and John Tamberlane. We started out with forty-two and a half million dollars of equity capital. Um, we were the eighty we were the eight thousand five hundredth largest bank in the United States. And with no acquisitions, no, um, you know, no nothing. We um, broke even after 21 months. We went public after 34 months, which is pretty fast for a bank. Um, today we are a um, $45 billion-ish bank. Um, again, no acquisitions, no nothing. It's all been by serving small and medium-sized business in the New York area, although recently we've just opened an office up in, in San, we've opened in California. And um, we also are big in multifamily. So we've tried to do well and do good at the same time. Uh, and that's my story in a nutshell. And and this book, which I think is um, maybe the most, other than my family, maybe the most important thing I've ever done. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, this this is incredible. Um, you talk about, I mean, what what a story. I mean, where do I where do I even start? I mean, I have a lot to say. Um, I'm going to let Josh go ahead. Go ahead, real quick, Josh. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate it, Rory. Something I'm really interested in is the whole banking aspect because not a whole lot of people have, you know. Uh, interests or ability to fulfill an interest of starting a bank, and especially a bank in New York. Kind of talk about how that came to be. 
Well, I actually did, if any of your viewers want to watch this, um, I did a TED Talk on sort of the idea a while back. Um, and you can find it at TED, uh, TEDx or on YouTube. Basically, in the 90s, my, I, I had seen banks such as JP, Morgan, Chase Bank, Manny Haney, Chemical, Trust Company of Westchester, uh, Long Island Trust, Greater New York Savings Bank, and I could go on and on. There were about 19 of them, and they all became J.P. Morgan Chase. And I realized that as the big banks were consolidating, they were they were really getting pretty good at servicing large companies, PepsiCo, IBM, and the like. And they had the critical mass to do mass market retail. But who wasn't getting served? People in the center, middle market companies. And so we built a bank where today probably 85% of our clients are middle market clients with between 25 and 500 employees. And we have, for them, the best services. So we had this hypothesis that this market was underserved. And the reason why most people haven't heard of us, even though we're today we're the 40th largest bank in the United States, is because we just serve these middle market companies and we stick close to our knitting and we don't get confused. So when the when the financial crisis came in 2008, 2007, 2008, we were actually the only bank in the United States above $4 billion that had no down year. We made more money in 08 than 07, more money in 09 than 08, et cetera, et cetera. We had no downturn during the financial crisis because we knew who our clients were they were businesses. They were companies with valid businesses, and we didn't get confused about, you know, subprime and CDOs and CDO squares. Because my saying is that the trick to being a successful banker is not to be a genius, just to avoid the stupid stuff. And if you do that, you can make money in banking. But once you start thinking you're a genius. It's dangerous. Well, yeah, you know, and yeah, I yeah, think you make a good you make a good point there, yeah, yeah. Um, especially talking about yeah, talking about staying in your lane. Basically, is what you said there. It's something that a lot of businesses in all you know walks of life have struggle with, especially when they start to have success. I guess what I mean specifically is there any like something from you know as you were growing up or something you learned that basically made it because you stayed humble you were able to stay successful well i would say this when we opened the doors of the bank may 1st 2001 from scratch i said something that just sort of came out of my mouth we had 250 people and i said um my goal my you know swag my you know is that my my you know audacious goal would be that in five years we'd be $5 billion in size, and in 10 years we'll be $10 billion. Well, fast forward, and everybody remembers when you say something like that. Well, we tried to do a really good job and get things right in building a bank. We didn't want to be the lender of, you know, last resort where everybody who got turned down for a loan came to us. We really were pretty careful. And so fast forward five years, and we were a – $2.8 billion bank. So we hadn't so, made the $5 billion. So you're we're talking point- re- real, real quick, when you fast forward five years to 2006, the heart of the market, that's when you said you were worth that. We were $2.8 billion in assets. And I remember we had invest. excuse me, we had investors who came in 
who said, why aren't you investing in construction loans? Why aren't you doing AAA subprime? You can get high yields. You can borrow money. You can grow that way. And I basically said, no, you know, if you don't want, uh, we're not going to take that risk. And I said the same thing. You know, we don't want to be geniuses. We want to make sure that our depositors can sleep at night. Well, fast forward to 10 years and the financial crisis and the fact that we didn't have those issues, we were a almost $15 billion bank. So we had grown dramatically in the next five years because we were doing the right stuff and we weren't right. were we were getting traction, we were doing the right stuff and today it's seventeen years and as I said, seventeen and a half and we're forty five billion. So we've tripled since then. Because we continued to focus on doing the right stuff. We never bought anybody. So all of this growth is by people deciding one at a time to become clients of the bank. And so what I say, and if I could give your viewers and listeners one lesson, Absolutely. if they remember one thing from the non-book part of this conversation is people generally, and I think this goes for your show, people generally overestimate what they can do in the short run. But if they're right. really good at what they're doing, they underestimate what they can do in the long run. And if you if you just stick to doing Very what well you said. focus I thought that was very well said, what you just said in the short run. Keep going, though. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that's that's really the message. So people underestimate what they do in the short run, and – I'm sorry. They overestimate what they can do in the short run and underestimate what they can do in the long run, and keep that in mind. And that helps you also when you know you hit those bumps in the road because you should learn from every bump in the road. And and, and I've and – I've, I, I've, I've given there's actually one other lesson that I would share with your with your listeners and viewers as well which is um the most important thing and the one thing I learned in starting a business is that the most important thing is getting the right people on the bus with you in the room with you when we started the bank there were five people and uh and an idea and if someone wanted to join the bank in the early years it was like um, an ordeal for them because everybody would be interviewed maybe three times by everybody because if you get the wrong person in that starting team, it's hard to ever recover. I mean, you can recover from a bad business deal, but you can never really recover from having a bad partner. I mean, it just it destroys so the business. It eats everything alive. And so those first 30, 40 people were all our partners, essentially. We were all partners. We all had to rely on each other. We all had to, you know, sort of almost communicate telepathically. And so we spent a, a huge amount of time. And we still, even today, when we're hiring a group director or a senior vice president from the outside – they're very surprised at how much time we take to hire them. And we want to make sure they're sure. So hiring is something people, you know, I hear this, some, you know, startups have the view of hire fast and fire faster. I think that's ludicrous. I think that's the last thing startups should do, at least from my experience with the bank. Now, now, so you you have a very fascinating story. 
you know, I want to let jo- Josh, do you have any final thoughts on what you just said? Go ahead if you do. Uh, uh, any any reaction? Yeah. You know, something you said that I thought was interesting. Can you st- say again when the bank first opened its doors? May 1st, 2001, just before, six months before, not less than six months yeah, before that's 9-11. That's what I, when you said that, I was like, In New York. So a lot of people went under underground on, on 9-11. I mean, because the economy in New York kind of took a putter there. I mean, that was, was there any complications staying open as a bank then? Or, I mean, did you kind of have your ducks in a row at that point? No. I mean, one of our... One of our offices became essentially a national reserve. Our downtown office essentially was, you know, within the national reserve perimeter. We couldn't even get access to, it was only like weeks later. There was literally cash sitting on the counter because when it came time to evacuate, our downtown branch was literally a stone's throw. Um, I was there earlier this week, you know, or last week. I mean, literally that office, that is a stone's throw from um, ground zero. And, you know, everything went out. Um, No one knew, you know, what was going to happen next. Um, And it, it, you know, when I think of those days, when we opened the bank, interest rates, the Fed funds rate was six and a half. The Twin Towers were standing. And New York was doing fine. And six months later, New York was in the most severe recession. New York was in a worse recession, went into a worse recession in 01, 02 than 08, 09 for New York. Interest rates fell from 65 to 1%. And obviously, you had the Twin Towers uh, being felt um, by terrorists. So had someone told me that... April twenty, you know, April twenty ninth or whatever. Would we have? I told the, my two partners. Would we have opened the bank? I don't know if we would have had the courage to open the bank. But when things happen and you have the right partners, you march forward, lockstep, and that's when right. you see what partners are really about. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Rory, I could ask questions all day long, but I don't want to hog everybody else. So, yeah, yeah, I know everybody else wants to get a chance, and you know, I have a very you know important uh, you know thing I want to bring up, and I think you can probably relate to, and you know, many of the banks um, uh, can, and, and you know, many of them suffered, and, and it, it was a terrible. I mean, people were jumping out of buildings and killing themselves. It was so bad, but. Explain how your bank, uh, the kind of problems it went through uh, during the collapse in 2008. I mean, I, obviously, I know you, you. Your best year was 2006, when the heart of the market was. But you know, when that balloon hit, you know, uh, about a year and a half, two years later, 2008, you know, it was starting to really uh, get bad. Uh, what was your thoughts? Well, no, I, I mean, I think maybe I didn't express it well. I mean, we had no down year in the financial crisis. We grew much more slowly. Wow. We did it prudently. And so we made more money in 08 than 07, more money in 09 than 08. And that's because oh, wow. we didn't get giddy. Um, yeah. You know, we weren't geniuses. I mean, if we were geniuses, I suppose we would have shorted, uh, you know, Fannie and Freddie or something. We couldn't do that as a bank, but I mean yeah. – we didn't do any of that stuff. We just avoided the yeah. stupid stuff. You weren't, yeah. You weren't like uh, the Goldman Sachs or the Lehman Brothers. Like you, you were fortunate enough to not get it involved 
with some of the silly things and, and some of the, uh, you know, irresponsible, uh, you know, transactions that they were involved with, which is why they went under and which, which is why they suffered a lot. And, you know, obviously a lot of them or certain, certain one of the, certain, certain one of them got bit. I mean, certain banks got bailed out. Obviously we know that, but I'm just saying, you know, the things that they did uh, obviously, you know, was beyond corrupt. I mean, obviously you could probably explain, you know, some of the practices that they led and some of the things that they orchestrated that uh, eventually led to this collapse, this real estate bubble. Well, yeah, that's uh, that would take your whole show, but I would say this. Of course, of course. Um, of course. I would say I would make a few general statements. One is yeah. I, I think it comes down to a certain degree to morality because yeah. – and I and I talk about this. This isn't the main point in the book. And, and but... here's the crazy part, though. Before you continue, they were writing loans to people like it was candy. I mean, when they were taught, I mean, all the everything anybody could get a loan. I mean, this was like it was unbelievable. It was like mind blowing if you really saw how the market was working in like the 2006 time. I mean, Jesus Christ. But go ahead. Sorry. No, you're 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 right. It was it was semi ridiculous, um, and it it's the lack of morality on all sides. Let's be clear: you had underwriters just waving through loans, which you know, in other words, not really looking at them, just filling out the forms, approving them, Crossing them and then off. you had people. It, then you had people ticking boxes, but not seeing if anybody could actually pay for the pay for them. Yet appraisers not thinking, boy, this house sold for $100,000 three years ago, and now it's valued at $400,000. And they just say, well, that's the, those are the comps. You had people at under, you had people at Wall Street firms just taking in these mortgages, packaging them, selling them because there was no risk to them. They were selling off all the all of the risk and they'd make a profit and then in all candor you had people on the other side who were you know mini speculators who were buying houses doing you know so-called liars loans um you had um doing uh, you know who who knew they couldn't repay but were signing up for mortgages that had all sorts of exploding in other rates and then you had people who had attended a seminar on how to buy a house with no money down and were buying six or seven of them as their primary residence. So when you lose morality, and this is one point that I do make in the book, when, 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 when it gets to be where everybody's you know, not acting according to the golden rule, you know, not doing unto others as you wouldn't want done to yourself, then – you say, well, the other person's getting away with it. Why shouldn't I? Um, uh, these people are making money. Why shouldn't I? Uh, and and you know, Freud said that uh, we are all geniuses when it comes to self-justification, and he was certainly right. Um, people always had reasons. I've spoken to people at each level of the chain. I just talked about. I've spoken to, you know, major Wall Street traders who were taken in loans that they knew were never going to get repaid. Why did you do that? Well, everybody was doing it is the answer. Um, and we didn't have any risk. 
Well, you know what? You're not supposed to sell stuff that you know other people are going to lose money on. I mean, where is the morality in that? Where's the good faith? And that's one of the reasons I titled the book In Good Faith is because on the flip side, what were the buyers thinking of? You know, I believe that good faith is evidence-based faith. It's not blind faith. It's not faith in the underwriters, faith in Goldman, faith in, in Morgan Stanley or the like. It's evidence faith. You know, it's fair to have faith in something if there's evidence to back it up, and then you can make the um, assessment that, okay, this will work. Let me give you an ex- just a brief example. I'm, a, I'm chairman of our, of our credit committee. I mean, every time we make a loan, you know, the old, the, old, the old way of calling it was, you know, full faith and credit. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can't prove, like, we can't prove that there's a God that the loan will get paid back. Instead, we do our thinking, we do our analysis, we judge the character, and then we come up with the tenet, we come up with the principle, we come up with the belief that this loan will be repaid. But people right. stop doing that. They would buy loans because Goldman Sachs had underwritten it or or Morgan Stanley or whoever you want to plug in, yeah. Citibank. And yeah. so they released their reason. They stopped using their reason, and they just yeah. based it on blind faith. That's bad right. faith. And in right. a way, that's a form, if you will, and we can get into this, yeah. it's actually a form of idolatry. Right. I do. I do want to. I want to keep you on the line, but I am going to welcome our next special guest in a second. But and I want to hear from our other callers. But real quick, very important. You know, with what all the banks went through. You know, with with what all the small banks went through during this crisis is a tragedy. I mean, you look at the large banks got bailed out. The small banks are the ones that had to suffer. The small businesses are the ones that had to suffer. I mean, you look at, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, terrible thing that uh, went on. I mean, uh, I'm sure you are, are familiar and had friends that, you know, were, you know, had to go through that, right? Well, there's no doubt. But, you know, here is the other unfairness of it, and I actually also mentioned this in my book, which is that, yeah. you know, only one bank ever got blamed for this. Um, yeah. And only one bank. Yeah, they it was all a got away with murder. Chinatown. It's like they got away with. It's like they got away with murder. But continue. Sorry. Yeah, you're you're 100 percent correct because there was one bank. It was in Chinatown, and the prosecutors here were under pressure to do something. You know, nobody was charged with anything, and so. They charge this bank in uh, they charge this bank in Chinatown for making bad loans, which they had self-reported that there was some issue, and the jury, the, the, this case dragged on for five years, um, and this jury the jury finally said this is craziness. There's only actually one banker in yeah. all of the crisis who actually went to jail, and even the judge who, um, even the judge. Um, said, you know, um, uh, you know, this is uh, absolutely ridiculous. The name of the bank, by the way, was Abacus, a small bank who you wouldn't have ever heard of, who was indicted 240 times 
because Jesus. the regulators, you know, felt like they needed to do something. And yeah. there was one fellow, and this one poor fellow who was indicted and convicted yeah. was such a bit player. And, and you know, so the 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 real culprits were just you know sort of went off without any real speed bump it's, hey, Roy. it's a gross inequ- it's a gross iniquity yeah. and you know i actually try to compare biblical um justice to the justice that we had because i you know the, the the Bible is one of those books that the less people know about it, the less they like it. But when you actually delve into the concepts of biblical justice and 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 you know proving stuff, um, in a way it's a lot fair. I mean, you know, the thing that people lose track of, and I just want to say this, and I'll let you you move on. But if you only read one chapter in the Bible, read chapter 19 of Leviticus, because Adam Smith was probably reading this chapter in that um, that's the chapter that says, you know, keep fair weights and measures because I am the Lord your God. Don't um, deceive each other because I am the Lord your God. Um, You shall not uh, act adversely. You shall assist your enemy. If your enemy's, uh, you know, ox falls, you'll help him pick it up because I am the Lord your God. At every step, Every commandment in that chapter says there's three parties whenever there's any transaction. There's you, your counterparty, and God is there. And you should be trying not to deceive your counterparty because there's an eternal witness. And my sort of homiletic view is that Adam Smith, who knew biblical Hebrew pretty well, might have been thinking of that chapter when he was thinking of the invisible hand. Because the first time he introduces the concept of invisible hand is not in Wealth of Nations, but in his previous work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where he talks about the invisible hand as a, as a tool of trust. And um, without trust, every economic transaction falls apart. If I can't trust you, if I can't trust uh, anybody I'm dealing with, you know, when I'm, if, I, if I go to a, a restaurant and I don't expect to get the food – uh, or they don't expect to get paid. You you can't have anything without trust. Well, that's what Leviticus 19 is all about. And we lost track of that. And the and what we lost track of was we just created a lot of regulation, and everybody tried to you know go around the regulation to find loopholes, as opposed to remembering the fundamental the fundamentals, which is don't deceive because there's a moral god. Don't lie. Don't throw lousy mortgages into a package, not because it's in Article 4, Section 432, Subpart I, Subpart K, Subpart J, but because you shouldn't do that, and you should know better. And that's what we lost track of. And I worry that unless we have morality as a fundamental tenant of our economy, that we're susceptible to other sorts of um, trust-driven recessions. Let me put it that way. Okay, very well said. Very well said. You know, I I know I know there's a lot of thoughts from a lot of people on the line. I am going to welcome our next guest, though. Please stay on the line, Scott. Um, 
I want to, I want to, Scott, I want to talk to you about a bunch more stuff, but our next guest, economist, entrepreneur, motivational speaker, writer for Town Hall, Newsmax, LiveZet, and a professor of finance at Stockton University in New Jersey, Dr. Michael Bussler. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Rory. My pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I know you have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to get right to you. Um, Valerie, though, go ahead. Um, thank you. I came in. I, I lost you guys for a few minutes, but I'm fascinated um, with what Scott is saying with regard to the Bible and money. <laughs> I mean, you know, the whole idea that if you do the right thing, um, I guess it comes back around. And, you know, I'm wondering, I mean, I think anybody that reads Leviticus chapter 19 will, will, say, will be able to put that same idea into every part of our lives, not just in banking, but in, you know, in politics and in education. Every, every area of our life should be guided by those, those precepts. Um, and the problem, I guess, is that we're, we're off course in so many different areas. And if we get, become more simple and go back to the basics, maybe Washington would be you know, better and, and Wall Street would be better and certainly the schools and everything else. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, um, how do we get back to that? Well, I think we get back to it by going back to – to, to, to simpler values, but biblical values. I mean, basically, the Bible says every one of us contains a spark of divinity in us, and therefore, we should all be guided by the golden rule. I shouldn't do anything to you that I wouldn't be fine with you doing to me. And I think if we got rid of a lot of regulation and just went back to simple basics, we'd be in a lot better place. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, we, even as a bank, we have a, something called the standard of conduct that, we make every, that everybody has to sign every year. And I realize it's getting bigger and it's getting more regulatory-oriented. And I made an addendum, which is in the beginning, uh, you know, sort of the, the proceeds. It says, you know, there's a lot of rules – there's like, you know, another 25 pages to read. But if you make sure that you treat all of your colleagues, your, our clients, our vendors, um, our counterparties, our borrowers, in a way that you would be okay being treated yourself, then you're probably going to be okay and not have to worry about all of these subparts of our standards of conduct. And it's changing that mindset and we've gone so far away from it that it's it is frightening. It's frightening as a society. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Valerie, I agree. Yeah. I mean it seems yeah. it seems like um, you know, on the one hand we're talking about Rand Paul and Steve Scalise and um all <clears throat> kinds of politicians that are literally afraid of for their lives. Um yep. And, and it's like two polar opposites between, you know, like what you're discussing and what is what I'm living in in Washington. And, um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't wear a MAGA hat going out. I wouldn't um, put a Trump sticker on my car because I'm afraid, um, you know, somebody's going to hit my car or attack me or something. And I just feel like, 
you know, I wish what you're saying was more true. It just seems like we've gotten so far away that I'm losing hope that we can get back, and I hope you're right. Well, if the Bible says one thing, if the Bible teaches one thing, it's that um, it's all about courage. Um, You know, when Judah stood up um, to his brother Joseph when he didn't know Joseph was when when Joseph was the um, the you know the prime minister and said instead of Simon take me as your slave send him back that took a lot of courage when mm-hmm. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit um, because he was telling the truth about how corrupt the Israelite uh, the the Israelite society was. That took courage. When Hulda, that took courage. You know, I, I think one of the most courageous people is um, was Hannah. Was Hannah in the in the in the book of um, beginning of the book of of Samuel, where, as you may recall, she is praying for a child and she teaches how us how to pray. She's moving her lips, but nobody can hear her. And the, the high priest Ellie comes up to her. And says, you're drunk. What are you doing here? You know, get out. And she says, you know, don't forget, this is ancient, the ancient world where the high priest was a pretty big deal. And where in most societies, if you spoke back to the high priest, you were killed. And she says, you know, in Hebrew law, Denise, she says, no, my Lord, I'm not drunk. She speaks right back to the high priest. I mean, the, the Bible is all about speaking truth to power. Now, I'm not on this show right now talking about what is truth, but... Right. But I think I think you make a lot of sense when, you know, and, and <clears throat> in so many ways, you know, I think, you know, what the, the, Bible, the Bible kind of, you know, says and, and, and how it goes, how it's narrated, I think it resonates with how the what the economical standpoint is in our country and and what different outcomes of different things are in our country i think it all makes sense well let me give you one more biblical story which is um the and i and real, it's a real really quick, short you, oh go go okay. sorry real quick i want to get i want to get to our other callers but i want you I'll tell the story real quick and then i want i know a lot of people have questions for you before you go okay Oh yeah, and I don't have that much time. So the quick story is: read the book of Jonah. It's it's only four chapters. You actually have to read the first three. Jonah is told to go and save the Assyrians, right? He's a Hebrew prophet. He's told to go to save the Assyrians, and he does not want to do that in the worst possible way because he knows he knows that the Assyrians are very dangerous. So he yeah. runs. He goes down. Down, down. He tries to hide in every way he can. He goes down and, you know, he ultimately flees and he's in the fish. But every step of the way that he takes, it says he's going down, if you read the Hebrew. And he's fleeing from the truth. Actually, his name is Yonah ben Amitai, which means Jonah, the son of truth. He knows what the truth is, and he's fleeing because he doesn't want the outcome of the Assyrians being saved because he knows that they can come and um, ultimately decimate, which they do, the Israelite kingdom and scatter them forever. So the Bible also says 
we have to confront truths even when we don't like those truths. And we have to deal with them. And if we deal with them in the right way, well, maybe Jonah should have, Jonah should have tried to talk to the Assyrians in a different kind of way um, that might have had a different uh, outcome for the Israelites. But instead, he wants to run from truth. And, and too many times, we as a society, we each running to our own truth. And it's, it's really quite dangerous. No, I hear you. I hear you. Good story, though. Good story. Dr. Michael Bussler, uh, I know, you know yeah. you've been listening for a long time. Um, I want yeah. to get to you. Uh, you've been hearing about all the economy stuff we've been talking about. You're an economist. Yeah. So I wonder what are your thoughts on all this stuff. Yeah, well, um, um, I can't talk about any of the religious kind of things. So I, I don't really have a lot of expertise there. But when no, I first that, came online. What we were talking about before that. Yeah, yeah Scott was talking about um, the, the banks and the financial crisis and uh, how his yep, bank yep. fortunately did very well through, through all that. You know, um, if you take a look at kind of the big picture with the financial crisis, um, you know, we blame the banks for uh, making uh, what we call predatory loans, that they were making loans, as Scott pointed out, to people that couldn't afford to, to really pay them back. And that's why essentially they all defaulted on them. And that really is what led to the financial crisis. But if you take a look at uh, how this whole thing got started, um, it, it really got started uh, by the federal government interfering with the housing market. Uh, so so um, in, in the late 80s, uh, sociologists convinced Congress that social problems would be minimized in places where people owned homes rather than rented homes. And you would, you would get less teenage pregnancies, less uh, people dropping out of high school, less crime. So social problems are minimized where in areas where people own homes rather than rent. So historically, about 62, 63% of the population uh, owns homes and the rest rent. So the federal government, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, set a goal in the early 90s to increase home ownership from that 62, 63% of households up to about 70%. That extra 8%, roughly 11 million uh, households, they wanted to make into uh, homeowners. So the question was, well, why weren't they homeowners? Well, they they weren't homeowners because they couldn't buy homes. And why was that? Well, mostly because they didn't have down payments, and their income was not quite high enough to cover the mortgage payments. So also, as Scott pointed out, the, the banks and such that make loans don't keep those loans. They, they make them, they package them, and they sell them mostly to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, although we had Countrywide Mortgage and GMAC involved before then. But mostly they go to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac said, well, look, we, we want to get this extra 11 million households uh, turn them into homeowners, so we want you to approve mortgages. Um, so the mortgages you can approve and we'll buy from you, uh, people can have zero down payment and give them a teaser rate in the beginning uh, so they qualify for the mortgage, and then you know the rate will adjust upward, but their income will go up and the value of the house will go up and everything will work out. So uh, the banks originated all those loans, sold them to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They had 11 million households taking out an average of a 
dollar mortgage that's 2.2 trillion dollars um and by 2006 the home ownership rate had gotten up to 69.9%. The government said, wow, this is a success. But then all of those adjustable mortgages adjusted upward. Um, the economy was beginning to slow down, so unemployment was inching up. People were losing the jobs. Uh, all of a sudden, people started defaulting on these mortgages. And since they had no money into the, the, the house and no down payment, um, they just sort of stayed there until the government foreclosed. Um, and that led, of course, to the housing crisis. Now, meanwhile, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have $2.2 trillion worth of mortgages, and they've got to get their money back so they can continue to, to lend. So uh, they hire Lehman Brothers and some others uh, to sell mortgage-backed securities, um, which they did. And bottom line is virtually all of the $2.2 trillion became worthless. And that's essentially what led to the financial crisis. And incidentally, today, the home ownership rate is back down to about 63% of, of households. That's the big picture. Yeah, Roy, let me take it. To the, yeah, I want to I wanna back up a little bit. Um, I've been in this business for 45 years of managing money. I went through the, the crisis. I didn't have any subprime loans. None of my clients did. But I think there's another piece to this puzzle that needs to be said. Actually, two pieces. First of all, we have driven God out of our society. We no longer talk about it in schools, and we're not allowed to pray. And so where is our moral compass? That could be a whole show. But the historical perspective on this mortgage crisis really lays primarily, in my opinion, at the feet of the Democratic Party. Jimmy Carter was responsible for expanding the Community Lending Act, which was part of the process of making housing more affordable. Bill Clinton expanded it, but the three people that are absolutely the, the bad guys in this whole deal are Chris Dodd of Connecticut, Senator, Marty Frank of, of Massachusetts, and Maxine Waters. I watched many a hearing as uh, Reigns and the other leadership's uh, officers of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac being browbeat by Maxine Waters that everybody should have a home, whether they could afford, afford it or whether they could make the payment. The pressure from the Democratic Party to make housing, quote, affordable by making loans to people who could not afford them was the principal catalyst that started this whole thing. And it was right. the idea that we should make ever, we should allow everybody to have a house and that we forgot basic fundamental credit. The government pressured Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to encourage lenders to make these loans and securitize them but it all started with community lending, trying to do something that was not realistic. And when the time came to settle the moral bill, where was their compass? It wasn't around, like the other gentleman said. There was no compass. There was no foundation. And I'm not sure that we're any better off today from a moral standpoint of the collapse of the mortgage market and the financial losses that took place 
and seven, eight, and nine. I'm not sure we're any more moral today. We may be even more corrupt if we look what happened to the hearings with Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, Rory and Josh, I am going to have to sign off. My publicist has me on a whirlwind with the book having just come out, and I, I okay. literally have to hop off. But I want to thank you. I want to congratulate yeah. you again on 100 episodes, and um, you. hopefully uh, you'll continue on and have 200 and 300, and just the same way you'll you'll get that traction, and I hope you've underestimated what you can do in the long term. That's my blessing and, uh, to you. And Scott Shea, um uh, I want to thank you, uh, your first time on the show. You were a fantastic guest, and I hope to have you back on again soon. I'd love to have you uh, regularly. You're you're an awesome and very, very insightful as well and have a lot of great uh, experience, and uh, you've led a hell of a life and, uh, you know, a lot of adventures and definitely amazing stories, I'll tell you. Thank you very much, and, and I appreciate you having looked at my book in good faith. So that's uh, I really yeah, do thank you for that. And please tell every real quick pinpoint the pinpoint the premise for everybody real quick before you go and where they can find it. So the book basically explains why it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science, the historicity of the Bible, and our understanding of modern morality. And because I'm Jewish, um, I actually. Um, wanted to get other non-Jewish views in, so I spoke extensively, and interviews are in, and, and some of the quotes are included from Cardinal Dolan, from whose who's, uh, who's television show I was on earlier today, and uh, Reverend Dr. Calvin Butts, and uh, Reverend Dr. Catherine Henderson, basically folks from all across the spectrum. And um, it's just, this is an important issue, and and what I found is is that people are buying this book for their for their 16-year-olds and for their children who are going in college and being told, you know, belief in God is dumb. And and really that's surprised me how much this book is being read by young people and by people who can express their faith to non-believers. So I I hope my book becomes a bridge builder and uh, it's available everywhere i mean really it's been doing pretty well so you can get it at uh you know certainly on amazon barnes and noble and at most other bookstores in good faith and you know and you've had you've had a very successful career and you know uh your bank in uh, new york is by the way uh is that just one bank or have you opened multiple branches Oh, it's multiple, but we have uh, 31 branches, 31 offices. Oh, very nice. And are you just in the state of New York? Well, we have an office in Connecticut, and we also recently opened, announced that we've we're, we've come to San Francisco, and we hope to be in LA, and you know, next year. Wow! So your your bank just keeps growing and growing. Congrats on the success, and uh, you know your story. And, and your life, uh, it can't be explained or told on just one episode. So, you know, I'm going to have you back next week. I, I definitely want to, you know, talk to you more, uh, just a lot more in detail, uh, just about some of your life adventures and, and the uh, your amazing, you know, uh, background, because we definitely didn't cover everything, I can tell you. I look forward to it. Take okay, care. and real, real, real quick before you go, uh, please tell everyone where they can find your book. I, I don't, 
last thing you can say. Yeah, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any good book, any quality bookstore you can find in good faith by by Scott Shea, S-H-A-Y. So please... And what about just... Um, yeah. Yeah, please read it. About, please... Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then anything about you, like your website or anything? Oh, yeah. The website, thank you, is ingoodfaith.com. Uh, and okay. I can't really do Twitter or you know Facebook because of all the regulatory rules. Being being you know chairman of a bank, so it's basically the website okay. ingoodfaith.com, and people can actually you can reach me through that website too if someone wants to. Do you, do you have time for two questions from from some callers? Two questions. Um, I have something that's starting in five minutes, so it would have to be really quick. I have another okay. uh, uh, gig. Real quick, the lead. A leaders of Black for Trump has a question. Leaders of Black for Trump, go ahead. You have a question. Leaders of Black for Trump, are you there? I guess not. Josh, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, more of a more of a statement. Just to speak, because I know you got to go. I think it's important that you bring up. Um, you know, morality, as, as I do more research into the world of, you know, um, you know, economics, specifically macro, you know, the idea of morality continues to come up more and more often. Um, and I think it's really important that especially someone, you know, who's in a position um, of being a chairman of a bank, that, you know, morality is something that you're concerned about and interested in. So I just want to give you props for that. Thank you. Thank you. I is appreciate that. Is that. Valerie? Yes. Um, well, I have so many questions for you, but I know you have to go, so I'll hold them for next week or whenever we hear from you again. But I'm very impressed that you're bringing success with a bank and religion together. I think you're, it's quite unusual, um, and I, I'm, uh, I'm very impressed with, the, with that. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Dan Perkins or, or Dr. Bussler, any final questions? No, I, from I me, I'm good. I'm very impressed, though. Good luck with your book, okay. Scott. And IQ? Yes. Amazing. He needs to come again. 100% he's going to come back again. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Glad you liked him. All righty. Um, well, Scott, uh, thank you for coming on, and God, God bless. Have a great night, sir, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. All good to you. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. Scott Shea, everybody. Amazing guest. Amazing guy. Um, so, Doc, I, I want to get to a lot of things right now. We have a lot to get to. Um, D- Dr. Bustler, um, I, yeah. I want to get to a lot of economical questions. But first, I want to, I, I want to you know, get to um, Dan Perkins. You were, t- you wrote a big piece today um, and you've wrote, you've been writing big pieces for the last couple of weeks in, in the big, in the big papers. Uh, and you and I were talking earlier, um, this whole Nikki Haley thing, her suddenly, has suddenly resi- I mean, it's not suddenly resigning, uh, but the, the liberal media was trying to make news out of it saying she was resigning because of uh, Kavanaugh being confirmed, which is total gibberish. Uh, you know, but uh, you, she apparently told the president about this months ago, 
from what from what you and I discussed earlier, from what you heard from your sources, and you know this is right. something that was in the in the making. So you know this this shouldn't be uh, so surprising to people uh, at this point anymore. I mean, when it first came out today, when people didn't know what was going on, of course, but at this point, I mean, it's pretty much you know uh, kind of a uh, was a planned thing. Yes, in fact, when she was being interviewed today, she talked about in her time that she has worked with Donald Trump on his campaign and in the U.N. She had to wear a flak vest, an emotional flak vest, every day. And she said that, that, that when she agreed to serve as ambassador, she told the president that it was probably about two years is all she could physically and emotionally handle. So he agreed with her. And her, her, she was actually been with him three, almost three years, because she was very much yeah. involved in the campaign uh, to win the nomination. And uh, the president today said, um, you know, he kind of said, if you're ready, to, when you're ready to come back, name your job. I want you to work with me. And uh, she's been a, a yeah. tremendous stalwart, and she really did yeah. a wonderful job of praising yeah. today all the things yeah. that Donald Trump had accomplished in the in the world of international politics and uh, just rattled them off one right after another it was it was just she was you could tell she was still very enthusiastic for the president what he was trying to do very proud of the time she spent working with him and i fully expect to see her back probably in a second term You could tell. You could tell she had a lot of optimism for the future of the Trump administration. You know, she felt uh, at ease. Everything was. She knew everything was in good hands. Everything, you know, looked bright ahead. Uh, but right. you know, Dr. Bustler, Dr. Bustler, you're an economist from an economical standpoint. Uh, you can hmm. uh, say your, you say yourself that she did a fantastic job with the United Nations. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, she was up there right right in the front lines, uh, especially as there were some very difficult times uh, for her there, and she stood tall every, every single time. The, the, um, uh, the, the, the timing of her announcement I just find a little bit peculiar. Uh, while they were talking about it months ago, and she was going to stay until the end of the year, um, it just seemed a little peculiar to bring this up a few weeks before an election, um, even just for the reason that the, the Democrats are going to give, say, all kinds of things. Bob Menendez is running around saying that uh, he's concerned about the security of the nation. Uh, so the, the, the Democrats are going to spin this as negatively as, as possible. Um, so it's just the timing I thought was a little peculiar one of the uh, uh, websites was reporting that um, there was an ethics violation filed against Nikki Haley for, uh, I think, accepting um, plane rides back to South Carolina from uh, business associates or something. I didn't get the full details. I don't know if that had anything to do with it um, or, or not, but I just find the timing a little bit peculiar. You know, I, I mean, I can, I can, I can agree. You know, what, what are your, what are your thoughts, Dan, on that? Well, when we talked this afternoon, I told you that the, the scuttle was that Ivanka yeah. Trump might be the nominee. But 
Yeah, I mean, since he, we talk, here's since what we, scares since we, Let me finish wow. here before you, go, before you jump go off ahead, the deep ahead. end. Yeah, go ahead. The, the latest scuttle is the other Trump, and that is Jared Kushner. And the reason why is he has been so instrumental in dealing with hotspots all over the world that behind the scenes, as Nikki Haley said today, people do not understand what a talent this man is and what he's done for the president, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's bringing the, the, the uh, embassy to, to Jerusalem, on and on and on. He's been behind the scenes as it relates to North Korea. So uh, the, the current scuttle, because Ivanka would like to go back to New York, where she's probably been treated much better than she has been in Washington for two years, uh, Jared Kushner, as the ambassador to the end, uh, might be a great fit. Dan, where do you see uh, Nikki Haley going? Back home to be with her family for a while. See, really? I, I think that one of the, I, one I of the things... I was to... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was no, hearing you said. today that she might want to take Lindsey Graham's um, spot as senator. Yes, that, that I've heard that, but I think that at the moment, that's probably not a choice if Lindsey Graham. See, I, I I did another sh- a bunch of shows today, and I said I think that what's happened here is that with the death of John McCain, he had a tremendous amount of influence over over Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham now, without the influence of John McCain, has changed. He's become more conservative and more aggressive in his stand. So Much he's more. become a, a, a huge supporter for Donald Trump. So I don't know why Donald Trump would want to necessarily upset that, that apple cart uh, by having Nikki Haley run against what could be. Now, he, things can change, but right now he's very proud of uh, what, uh, what he's done and uh, I heard that same story, but um, I think that she we, – we forget that, that different parts of the country have different value propositions in their relationship with their wives and their children or husbands and their children. And she, when she left the governorship – remember, she's been in public life a long time. When she left the governorship to, to, to work with the Trump administration, she made a commitment, and her family was on board for that two-year, the three-year commitment. Um, but there's great honor and, and, and pride and dignity about families in, in, in the Carolinas and the, and the Deep South that isn't necessarily uh, as strong in other parts of the country. And so family was a very important element to Nikki Haley, and she wanted to honor her commitment to her her husband and children. Well, I also think that, you know, maybe she will spend some time doing that until Trump um, finishes his second term, and then maybe she'll be thinking about um, running herself. I don't know. But I think that would be a good move for her then to spend time with her family so that she can refresh, you know, herself if she decides to move forward with that later. Well, remember that that we're as 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 crazy as this sounds, we aren't even two years into Trump's first term. 
he's got more than two years yet to serve in this first term. She can take two years off, and he could find a spot for her, uh, which would, if she she could expand her resume to be a cabinet officer where she would get more executive experience, uh, she might be a more viable candidate, as you're you're suggesting, after Mm -hmm. Trump finishes his second term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was thinking the same thing, but if she knew the legislative side as a senator and maybe Lindsey Graham went into the executive branch, that could work as well. Uh, Graham's reported today that he is not interested in a cabinet job. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah he, did say, he did say that. I saw that report too. Um, jo- Josh, your thoughts. You, you, I haven't heard from you in a while. What's going on, buddy? Yeah. You know, uh, Dan, just to touch on what you just said, especially about, you know, the way that the way that people kind of present themselves in South Carolina. I I spent a month down there um, going door to door campaigning for the uh, attorney general race, um, which was a lot of fun um, doing that. But, you know, the people down there definitely, you know, I'm up in Ohio and the people definitely are much more family based. And, you know, they're, they're, the way that they keep their families together is a lot more of an important thing, you know, on their, on their resume or, you know, on their, on their list of things to do. So, you know, I, I definitely would agree with you there. Another thing is, though, Nikki Haley is very much liked in South Carolina. You know, obviously the governor, you know, the governorship that she, she committed, but the stuff that she did for Trump, everybody really, really liked. So... I mean, if Lindsey Graham just either decided not to run um, or seemed like he wasn't going to be the choice, I don't think she'd have any problem, you know, winning a Senate seat, which, you know, is important if, you know, a legitimate Democrat were to were to contest, even though it's South Carolina and I doubt that will ever happen. Um, but, you but, know, but, um, but remember, she remember definitely is well liked. Remember, there are two senators there. She doesn't necessarily have to run for – Lindsey Graham's seat. That is she true. could also run for, for the other one. The, mm-hmm. the other one, I'm trying to place what the other one's name is. It's blanking me right Tim now. Scott. Tim Scott. Tim, Scott, Tim Scott. Oh, he's not going anywhere. No, he's not going anywhere either. No. no. Um, you know what's interesting? Yeah, think, you were talking about the timing. I'm thinking, you know, to change the subject from Brett Kavanaugh to a very successful woman that likes Trump is a good move in terms of what we just went through, you know, with uh, Dr. Ford. Uh, Good point. Dr. Dr. Buster, what were you saying? Yeah, so um, Nikki Haley definitely has uh, higher aspirations. Um, I, I think she's even thinking about the presidency. And uh, she did mention that she was uh, governor for two terms and she's now been fighting uh, in the UN for ne- nearly two years. And she says that every day she goes in there, it's, it's really an, a, a fight. Uh, she says she feels like she's wearing a um, emotional uh, vest uh, that keeps things away. So um, I think she's a little bit tired. She wants to go home and recharge her batteries. I think her kids are 14 and 17. So that's about the age where you, uh, you know, it's good to have your mother around for those teenage uh, years and let her recharge her batteries. And then I think you're right during ter- uh, Trump's second term, 
Uh, she'll probably get a spot that will give her a little more um, experience. Um, and there are a couple of uh, names being being mentioned. I don't. Uh, Jared Kushner, I think, is certainly qualified. I have a feeling Trump sort of wants him closer to to his side. Um, but the um, the woman who's second in command at the UN and her I just forgot her name. Uh, it's not Powell, but um, I can't remember her name. But she was considered. And uh, Rick Grinnell is the the other one. He's currently the ambassador to Germany. He was considered um, in the same pool when uh, Trump picked Nikki Haley. Um, so those two I, I I've heard are the top two that are being considered uh, at this point. And we haven't heard the the rest of uh, the end of Nikki uh, Haley. Uh, whether she ends up, um, I mean, if, uh, and Lindsey Graham said he doesn't want a position in the cabinet now, but if he did take a position in the cabinet, the governor could then appoint um, Nikki Haley to fill that seat um, until the election time comes. And then she'd be in a pretty good position, I think, to uh, easily win, although she'd probably win anyway. And, uh, you know, become a senator, and then that gives her a stepping stone to where she wants to go afterwards. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think she does have a bright future. Um, you know, she's yeah. definitely, with what she's done with the U.N., it's absolutely incredible. You know, uh, Dr. Bussler, I want to switch topics, and I know everybody wants to talk about this, uh, you know, just kind of switching segments a little bit because uh, I know you have to yeah. go shortly, Dr. Gossler. Uh But economically, uh, we yeah. have manufacturing job growth now, the best since 1995. There was just a new report out, which is absolutely incredible. Manufacturing job growth. So we have and and small business optimism is at an all-time high, and compensation high. Uh, compensation uh, increases have set new records. Yeah, all all of those are uh, very positive signs, and you could also add that the uh, unemployment rate is down to about a 60-year low, uh, and in, yeah. in many categories uh, that have been persistently high, like minority unemployment, uh, women entering the workforce for the first time, even teenage unemployment, uh, all of those num those unemployment numbers are are way down, uh, and you're seeing, I think. You know, we're we're talking about before how uh, hostile uh, things have gotten, and uh, you know, it seems like there's so many Americans mad at each other. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the stagnant economy uh, that we had during the the last administration. Where I know my college, uh, my, my students that graduated, they were lucky to find a good job. Many of them had to take jobs that didn't require a college degree. So they were underemployed, and they got some frustration out of that, especially if they're carrying a fair amount of student debt. And as a result of them taking those jobs, people without college degrees had no opportunity at all. So they ended up dropping out of the workforce, became discouraged workers, probably five or six million of those now. Uh, so um, Trump was able to turn that around with uh, the growth, all those things that you've mentioned um, I think the most critical number uh, is uh, growth in GDP. Um, yeah. And I mentioned this on the show before we. GDP. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had 3% annual growth since 2005. 
Now, since Trump's come into office, you know, he came in in uh, January, start of 17, did some things with regulations, got him down. By April of 2017, we were growing at a 3% rate, which has continued today, got the tax cut passed. Um, the end of last year went into effect January of this year. By April of this year, we're growing at over a 4% rate. Um, I still believe the third quarter number, which will be out in about three weeks, uh, the end of the month, um, I think that's going to show about a 4.5% uh, growth. And I wouldn't be surprised next year to see a quarter or two where you see growth exceeding 5%. Uh, so that will keep the unemployment rate lower. All of my students that were underemployed are going to find better jobs, taking advantage of their uh, degrees. That will open up jobs for people who don't have college degrees and who have become discouraged workers. They'll come back in, into the workforce, um, and all the statistics will uh, improve, the ones that you mentioned, as long as we keep up with this good economic growth. And right. you remember when yeah. all the so-called experts were mocking Trump for saying that we could even get over 3%, which they claimed which right. is impossible? So it's just unreal. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a, and Trump's – um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just to say I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago where I said that the Democrats haven't paid attention to the calendar. Uh, as the professor just pointed out, we're going to have a, a first – revision, the first estimate for third quarter GDP the week before the election. And we'll have unemployment the week before the election. So that the the Democrats who were saying that that was a one quarter wonder are going to be hard pressed to to defend their position with a four and a half percent GDP for the third quarter and unemployment below three point nine. But, Doctor, I, remember, I remind you of my prediction when we were on the show together some time ago, 6% uh-huh. GDP All right. in the third quarter that. of 2019. <laughs> yeah, you're even more aggressive than, than I am, and, boy, I hope you're right. And, you know, just to, to show you that that could be right, um, when Reagan cut taxes in 81, went into effect in 82, GDP growth <laughs> in 1984 for the year was seven and a half percent. So right. although I think six uh, percent is a very optimistic number, it, it's it, it could certainly happen. And didn't Reagan, yeah, I believe in '84, didn't he have that huge landslide when he won like 49 states? The yeah. largest landslide ever. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and here, here's what's here's what's great right now, Trump. Uh, percentage approval, uh, according to Rasmussen poll, is now at fifty percent. Fifty percent. So I mean, that's that's better than uh, you know. That's a that's a really good number. Yeah, I, you I know think something. It's, I think it's a lot higher. Personally, personally, I think it's a lot higher. But that's a good poll. Yeah, in, actually, in comparison the, to CNN's BS poll that has them at like forty percent. And his disapproval at like fifty four or something. It's unreal. Jesus. Just, I know. Uh, what were you saying, Doctor Buster? Like yeah, they are. What were you saying, Doctor Buster? Yeah, I was. I was going to say actually, the last Rasmussen I think had him at fifty one percent. The other polls, and if you take a look at Real Clear Politics that averages them, 
Trump's in about the 44% range, according to them. Now, the, the reason Rasmussen takes a little, uh, I think, is a little more accurate uh, is they ask uh, people that are likely voters um, rather than just uh, Americans um, uh, who are registered to vote but who may not likely vote, and somehow they can tell the difference between them. The other thing is um, the other polls – um, the, the, the sample should be reflective of the population, which is, you know, roughly get 40 percent Democrats, 40 percent Republicans and 20 percent um, independents. Rasmussen's poll has that. The other polls are a little heavily favored with more Democrats because they argue that the 40, 40, 20 mix is not accurate. It should really be the, a little higher in, uh, with Democrats. So I think those polls are skewed. And Rory, right. I think you also sort of uh, uh, insinuated another point. Um, there are a lot of people, and, and Valerie even uh, mentioned something along this line too. There are a lot of people, when you're asked, are you a Trump supporter? They're Val a little majority. bit intimidated to say yes. Um, you know, just because they're afraid. Uh, just like Valerie said, you walk around Washington and you're afraid to wear your uh, Make America Great great hat. So I think when some people <laughs> yeah. are taking taking these polls, they're really going to vote for Trump, but they're a little reluctant to say so. Uh, and I think that's why the, the polls were so off during the uh, 2016 election. And even though they say the Democrats have a slight edge now, um, I think those polls are off too. And as we said before, um, I think the Republicans are going to do extremely well in this election. Hang on to the House and increase the number of senators to 57, 58, maybe as high as 60. Wow, that's a big prediction. I like it. So you're, so you're let, me, let me get this straight, Dr. Bussler, and I actually yeah. quite agree with you. I agree with you uh, majority of the time. You believe that we will keep control of the Congress, and, of the House, and the Senate. Yeah, we'll keep control of the House. We may lose a few seats, so we don't have quite as large a control, but we'll still have a majority in, in the House. And if you take right. a look at uh, a lot so of the, the Senate, and the Senate races, you think the House and the yeah. Senate. Okay. and we'll increase the majority in, in the Senate. Of the 33 senators running, uh, 23 are Democrats and only 10 are Republicans. So they only have to defend 10. And there's a, a bunch of seats that could flip. I live in New Jersey, uh, and there's a strong candidate, Bob Hugan, running against Menendez, uh, Bob Menendez, who has somewhat of a tarnished record. Um, they could flip in Florida. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp is probably going to lose. Uh, so you can see there's probably, uh, you know, five, six, seven seats that, that could go from Democrat to Republican, and if Republicans well, hang on Kester. to what they, they have. Uh, that's another one. That's another one that could go hey, too. Hey, Roy. So, yeah, go ahead, Dan. Real, stay on the line, Doctor Buster. Go ahead, Dan, real quick. Okay. What are you two, two, two numbers today. Prior to the Kavanaugh hearings two weeks ago, Texas yeah. was a, reportedly to be a dead heat. As right. of this past now, weekend, now Ted Cruz is leading double digits, right? He's up fourteen, and in Tennessee. Yeah. She was dead heat, and she's up 15. Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn. Blackburn. There's uh, there are people yeah. examples all over the country where there's been a huge shift 
away from the Democratic candidates to the Republican candidates. So uh, I still believe it's going to be a red wave. And, and I really believe, I really, really believe that if you walk into the voting booth and, you, and you're anywhere uh, aware of the Democratic philosophy and what the Republicans have done, you will not pull the lever for a Democrat. And I, I think this professor is correct that there's a lot of people who are reluctant to admit that they're going to vote Republican, but I still believe there's going to be a very significant red wave. I think I understand the, the, the logic of saying, well, there's, there could be some loss, but not loss of control. I actually believe that the Republicans are going to gain seats in the House, not lose. Oh, absolutely. And I think I, I, I was good at 58 on the senators, so 60 is not that big a stretch. I think that's very possible. So you're, so you're at 58, Dan. Uh, Mike, Dr. Bustle, you're at 60. Uh, what, what are you at, uh, Dr. Bustler, with the House? What do you think the number is going to be? I'll tell you, um, originally uh, I agreed with Dan that I thought the, the Republicans would actually pick up seats in the, in, in the House. Um, based on some of the polls, and I don't know how accurate they, they are, I thought, well, maybe they won't pick up, but I think they'll at, at least hold. Um, I, I, think, I think they have 221 now. Is that the right number? Right. I think the Republicans have. Um, if that's the case, um, I, there's certainly a lot of um, support for everything Dan, Dan has said, and I'd like to see them uh, end up with um, more seats. The thing is with the House of Representatives, you're not dealing with uh, someone who's running in the entire state uh, as a senator would be. You're run, looking at somebody who's running in a local area. And when right. you get to some of the local politics, it's sometimes more personality than it is party. I know in Pennsylvania right. when uh, Connor won, um, he essentially said, I'm not going to follow what the Democrats tell me. I'm going to – I think Trump's doing uh, the right thing in, in many areas. Um, he said, I, I wouldn't uh, back Nancy Pelosi. Um, and he was a young, uh, kind of vibrant-looking guy, and he ended up, he ended up winning. Uh, so with the House, because it's uh, a little more localized, uh, I think there's a little more variation that could occur. Um, but I'm yeah, with but Dan. With, I hope they end up with more seats in both houses. <laughs> uh, just, just let me give you one, one piece of information. Hold on, the, Dan. Dan, the, let's take the, a call. Let's take a call from a random caller. Hold on a second. Thank you for calling the Rory Sauter Show. Who am I speaking with? Yes, this is Mike from Singapore. How you doing? Hello. Mike who who am I? Who am I speaking with? This is Mike from Singapore, my friend. How are you, oh, everyone? Mike from, Mike from Singapore. Wow, from Singapore. Wow. wow. Nice. Good to hear from you. How, yes. are, how are you? First yeah, time calling into the show, right? No, no. We do monitor your show frequently, especially you brought uh, that Arab guy. What was his name? Uh, you had a couple of, uh, I mean, 10 days ago, uh, uh, IQ or something like that, IQ, and I was trying to call you and ask him a question too, and we, I mean, I guess it did not, uh, we, uh, you well, did IQ's not take, you, you remember? I, well, what, yeah, well, what, what question do you have? 
No, no. Uh, I mean, the other guy from, uh, uh, from you know, that he was a Egypt- uh, Iraqi guy. You remember? He, he was yeah, yeah. Uh, on the line right uh, now. Uh, he's on the line right now. Oh, Do you have a he? question for him? Yeah, is he? Where, where is he? Can I tell him hi? Yeah, he's right here. Hi, Kiwi. I'm here. Oh, yes. Kefahalika. Ahlan wasahlan. Marhaba. Shukran. Shukran. What is your Shukran. question? Yes, yes. Yes, my friend. You know, we are looking for you for a long time, actually. You know, uh, you know, uh, this uh, immigration and these Syrian refugees that keep coming to Canada and, you know, USA, and they're trying to change our way of life. Our life is constitution of the United States. Although they're taking it up from us uh, differently from other, uh, you know, like uh, government, you know, but then these people are also taking it. So we will have no constitution at all. So what's your opinion? I mean, what we have to do, my friend? Well, first of all, they are not from Syria. The Syrians are not black people. The people who are coming to Canada and the people who are coming to America are from uh, Somalia and North uh, and Africa. So let's, let's get rid of this idea that they are Syrian. Syrians are fair-haired, Semitic people. Uh, Muslims will never integrate in any society which is not Islamic. This is prohibited in the Quran. I've said it a million times, but it doesn't sink in. Because human beings have been conditioned by the news media, which is false, that Islam means peace, that Muslims are part and parcel or can be part and parcel of American dream. They cannot, they are forbidden to be in any part and parcel of any society which is not Islamic. So when Donald Trump said, let's stop immigration, let's check them, they went down on him that he is against human rights, that he is a racist, that he is Islamophobic. All that is bullcrap. He is absolutely <laughs> correct. If you go to any mosque, and if you listen to every Masjid, single Masjid. one of the imams, every single one of yeah. them tells the congregation, you cannot be part and parcel of the infidels. Who are the infidels? Christians, Jews, Buddhists, right. Hindus, yes. anybody who is not a Muslim. I hope I answered you. Yes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I, I always agree with you, my friend. I mean, I know that. That's the fact. What you're saying is uh, 500% is right. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, can you uh, tell me what is this means? Makana Muhammadan Abu Ahadan Wallakan Rasulullah wa Qatun Abina. Can you please say what is this means? Why well, they what, keep saying what this the is the last? saying that Muhammad was a prophet. Yeah. But you know what? When yeah. you read the Quran and study the hadith, he never yes. prophesied anything. You know, this yeah. is the most remarkable thing. Muslims lie to your face and get away with it. Yes. Because 99% of humanity is not willing to even read the Quran. I've always said, don't bother buying the Quran. Google it. You don't need to read 114 chapters. Read chapter 2 to chapter 9. Eight chapters. You will know more about Islam. You will know more about Muhammad than the Imam of the mosque. Is that simple? It's not complicated. 
Muhammad was uh, a mass murderer, a child racist, yes. a, a, a pathological liar. And because Muslims believe that he is the most perfect human being that was ever created, superior to Jesus, superior to Moses, and superior to Abraham, and they have to emulate him. And they're right. They are emulating him. That's why they murder people, rape people, slaughter people, uh, enslave people. That's what exa this is exactly what they've been doing for 1,400 years. Muslims are the psychopathological clones of Muhammad. And I would like somebody from CARE, uh, the Council of American Islamic Relations, to debate me. I've been begging for one of them to debate me for the last 10 years. But they're sure, such cowards, sure. they would never come. Yes. Uh, can you please tell uh, uh, your listeners, your everyone, I, uh, it was Aisha, uh, it was six years old that Muhammad married to her. Can you please elaborate on that, please? Shukran. It's true. <laughs> the tragedy of with Islam is that people don't study. They don't read about Islam. In the hadith, in the traditions, Aisha herself said on several in Bukhari hadith, in Muslim hadith, she said that he betrothed her when she was six, and he laid with her, he raped her, actually, when she was nine. But when she was nine, he was 53 years old. But the Muslims say, ah, yes, but she was nine, and she was mature. Really? When would you find a mature child at nine? Whether physically or intellectually. Even if she was physically, intellectually, <laughs> that was rape. He actually raped yes, her. Sir. But they say, nakaha. But in the Arabic language, the word nakaha yeah. means several things. Is to have sex. Nikah is to have sex. Whether Nikah. it's to be married, whether it is rape, <laughs> whether it is betrothed, it's irrelevant. It's one word which covers all of them. So what they translate it to the English language, they say, he married her. No, he didn't marry her. He raped her. Right. Exactly. Uh, please, can you say that when uh, last, Muhammad... Last, 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 uh, couple more, like, last question, man, then we got to roll. Okay. Uh, so let me ask a different question uh, once again. Okay. Uh, since, um, you know... Uh, when Muhammad came and, uh, you know, cut all the statues, and he asked one of the followers, I mean, somebody, he said, who is that big giant? Uh, is there a statue? They said, always they call him Allah. And uh, so basically, that's what uh, now everybody say, Allah. Uh, can you elaborate on that? And also, uh, have you read the book Mission for Muhammad and Islam, Islam uh, Two Faces, please? No, I haven't read that. No, I haven't read that book. By the way, when he said that he destroyed the idols of the Kaaba, he was praying in the Kaaba while these idols were there for 22 years. And all of a sudden, they say he destroyed the, 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 the idols. So really, again and again, I repeat, everything about Islam 
is lies. I can't add more than that because we have to discuss something yes, else. Yes. Thank you for calling. Okay, shukran. Lama fi mishkilati. IQ, are you still there? Of course, I'm here. Okay, perfect. Um, so, so yeah, wow, that was uh, that was a little odd. I did not re- expect that uh, call, but uh, yeah, I'm glad we cleared that up. Everything in Islam is a lie. Very true. Um, but uh, Dr. Bustler, uh, we, we do have a few minutes left. About five minutes left. Uh, Dan, you were. I want to get back to you, Dr. Bustler. Dan, you were saying something. Well, I was saying that is that is that the 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 issue is how, how do we expect how can we expect people who are part of this 3.9 percent unemployment rate how can we expect them people who've gotten back to work uh, and 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 you know the idea that that the Demo- the Republican committee yeah. campaign committee for the reelection of the Congress has asked the president to do 40 campaign stops look at how many he's doing and look at what he did two weeks ago in tennessee with sixty thousand people what i'm saying to you is that donald trump single-handedly is going out into the hinterlands across the country and he's going to win the election for the republicans and here's the here's another thing that i did not say earlier about the kavanaugh situation you know Dr. Ford is not pursuing further charges. You know, fun, funny, isn't it? I mean, now everyone can even see how much of a, a stunt this was and how much of a fake, phony uh, narrative, uh, you know, they went off of, like I said earlier in the show. But, you know, it's uh, the country seeing that as well, how they were trying to ruin a man's life. You know, whether whatever your political stance may be, uh, anybody that can be open-minded and put themselves in anybody sh- else's shoes would not want anyone to go through that, especially if they were innocent like Justice Kavanaugh was. But, uh, J- Josh, real quick, your thoughts on everything. You, you know, I really can't add much to that. I pretty much agree with everything you say. The only thing I just want to add off-color is, uh, you know, that was kind of cool that we, the uh, the conversation we just had about Islam there. That was kind of unique to the show. <laughs> Interesting that that happened on the 100th episode. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, uh, what what's, um, what are your thoughts, Dr. Buffler? Uh, well, well, I've I've heard some of this discussion. We we talked about this on uh, other shows. Some of the stuff we just had about uh, Islam and the religion. Um, I, I'll tell you, it, it, I, I'm starting to look at it a little differently. Having listened to this, um, I've traveled to the Middle East uh, three times. Um, I have two or three uh, colleagues that have become friends I've known for 15, 20 years that are Muslim. Um, yeah. And I, of course, I get along with them on a personal basis uh, yeah. very, very well. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I need to look at maybe some things a little differently than I'd looked at them in the past, based on what I've heard here. Yeah, and just on ever, and just the you know um, the economy in general, um, other than the Islam conversation that we just had. But you're absolutely oh. right. Uh, you're absolutely yeah. right. But. Uh, what you said about the economy was spot on. I just wanted to say, um, you know, real quick, um, Valerie, you have a you have a minute or or minute or so. 
Um, I know you want to talk about uh, the Islam thing probably because, you know, you've written several books about it and uh, you're an expert in it and uh, you've done a lot of uh, different uh, projects on it. Thanks, Rory. Um, Well, I found it interesting. Um, The problem is that if you are a Muslim, you can say things like what these gentlemen said. And by the way, way, real quick, Valerie, the guy – the guy that you uh, wanted to talk to and meet so bad that you missed uh, you missed the episode because you were sick. And for everybody, for anybody that doesn't know, Valerie's my co-host, and she used to work for Ronald Reagan as well. Very well, very well talented woman. But um, she, um, IQ is on the line, Valerie. The guy, um, the very yeah. successful, uh, famous. Um, radical Islam expert that you were uh, you missed the episode a few weeks ago that you really wanted to talk to yeah so I, I'd love to you know ask him some questions another time um, but I found I found it he, he'll be on every week by the had... oh great okay so we'll have a chance um, you know if you're not a Muslim it's it's really difficult to say the kind of things that they were saying on you know their conversation um, because then you're an Islamophobe and a bigot and a racist and all these other things. Um, you know, so I thought uh, it was quite interesting and wondering, you know, I'd love to hear more about backing up some of those pretty wide-range statements that they made. Um, you know, I, I may agree with some of them, but I'd love to hear, you know, the background for how they got to believe what they, what they were talking about. Um, right, and a little more next time. Why, why don't you ask me the question ah, and I'll give you the answers yeah. next time, next week. I no, we still you got, back we up still every got single still, item. We got a would minute left. Right? About a minute that, left. If, would you agree with me that if you're not a Muslim, those kinds of statements would be uh, very difficult to, to make? No. Why? Why should Why should Muslims? be given the privilege of not being criticized. All I'm saying is, I back up everything I say with verses from the Quran and verses from Hadith. There's no human being on planet Earth who can debate with the subject of Islam and wins. And this is not a boost. I have had, just for your information, over mm-hmm. one and a half million dollars worth of challenges for the last 10 years to every human being to prove me wrong. Ten years later, I haven't lost a dime. And ten years later, not a single imam has been willing to come to debate me. Why do they do that? Because they know they will lose. My language is Arabic. I come from Iraq. I was born in Baghdad. So nobody could say, ah, IQ doesn't speak English, uh, Arabic. No, I speak Arabic. It's my mother tongue. I studied yeah. Islam for 30 years. I have researched them. I have them on my website. All you have to do, by the way, Google Al-Rasuli, A-L-R-A-S-S-O-O-L-I. I don't ask you to uh-huh. buy anything. Everything is free of charge. Believe me. And there's no I don't ask anybody to buy my books. They are all free of charge. <laughs> Perfect. And, and where can they find all that? Uh, please tell everybody where they can find all that. Just Google my name. Al-Rasuli, okay, A-L-R-A-S-S-O-O-L-I, free of charge. You have uh, 243 audio videos, and in the name of Allah.org, which is connected there, 760 chapters demolishing every facet of Islam, based on their own language, 
based on their own sources. Excellent. What more All can righty. I IQ, IQ, always a pleasure. We'll have you back next week. God um, bless great you. I'll see you next on. week. All right. Talk to you then, Thank sir. Thank you. All righty. Dan Perkins. Uh, everybody can find you at danperkins.guru, correct? And you will uh, yes, be sir. involved with our brand-new NextGen USA media site that we will be uh, – we already have it underway, but we will be getting it uh, officially uh, going and uh, constantly active this week, 24-7 news coverage. So we're excited about that. Um, Dan, thank you for coming on. We'll have you back on uh, this week and also next week as well. Thank you. Take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. And uh, Valerie, uh, or Dr. Bussler, real quick, everybody can find your Facebook uh, uh, segments. Uh, where at? Uh, the easiest place, you can Google my name, but the easiest place is um, my Facebook page. So facebook.com forward slash funding democracy. Page is called Excellent. Funding Democracy, the Economics of Freedom, but just search Funding Democracy and you'll find it. Thanks, Rory. I look forward to being back on the show again soon. Excellent. And Dr. Bussler, we look forward to having you a part of the Next Gen USA as well. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. All right, I'll talk buddy. To you soon. Take care. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Valerie, real quick, where people can find your book. Thanks, Rory. Um, it's backyardjihad.com, and um, they can check out skyracesecurity.com as well. Excellent. Uh, and, and Josh, go ahead. Yeah, appreciate it, Rory. Go ahead and give me a follow on Instagram at J-O-S-H-H-L-A-V as in Victor, A-T-Y. Excellent. And everybody, uh, please visit uh, rorysodder.tv. Uh, visit GetYourAppBuilt.com. Also visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com. Again, that's TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com. You can also visit all my social media sites. Uh, we'll bring you uh, the Next Gen USA site this week, which we're excited about. Um, we'll be back with you tomorrow night. Big show planned. Um, God bless everyone. Have a great night. Uh, much love. Cheers. <laughs>